Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Alan Fisher and Barbara Summer, and John and Rachie Teller. And this episode is generously sponsored by the Sephardic Community Alliance. Okay, yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're wrong. I've been a diehard NBA fan since I was a kid. I grew up watching the greats like MJ, Hakeem the Dream, and Patrick Ewing. And I just threw him in for all the New York fans who have been suffering for way too long. But the experience of watching sports isn't just about the players. You know what makes watching a good game really great? It's a great sportscaster. The guy who tells me what I'm watching and also gives it flavor, color, texture. And one of the greats is a legendary man by the name of Marv Albert. Marv has called some of the greatest games in NBA history. Until his recent retirement, Marv, I'll miss you. Marv has been interviewed over the years about his style of calling games. And on his retirement tour, he said one thing that I can't get out of my head. See, here's the background. Marv wasn't the kind of sportscaster who told you how fantastically the team was doing, even if they were losing by 10 points. Actually, let me tell you a story. By the early 2000s, Marv had been the official Knicks sportscaster for decades already. Let's be honest, at this stage, the Knicks were not very good. And Marv was real about that, as he called the game. But reportedly, the Knicks front office wasn't so thrilled about Marv making what they thought of as critical comments about the team, even though Marv was just calling it honestly. And Marv, I like saying Marv, was recently asked about this very choice. Specifically, he was asked if objectivity was important. This is what he said. Very, very important. I know particularly out of town, a lot of announcers are really encouraged to be homers. And I just feel I personally could not do that, particularly on radio, where you are the game. Why would people believe you if you are not telling them when times are bad that either someone's not playing well or the team is not playing well if they're not playing well? And on television, people see it. So if you're saying something that is really not happening, you look foolish. You don't have to kill But if something's bad, you have to say it. Marv Albert, with deep wisdom, yes! Okay, that was my pathetic attempt at a Marv Albert impression. I think Marv actually hit the nail on the head here. Objectivity or trying to be objective is important because truth is important. But also, you're not fooling anyone, right? If the Knicks are down by 20 late in the fourth and you tell the people they still have a chance, their only thought is, well, can't really trust this guy. No one believes, oh, Marv is down on the Knicks in this game. He must hate them. Heck, he must hate basketball. That would be crazy. Marv is basketball. And when it's honest about the tough times, we truly believe it more because he builds up stores of trust with us. And I think about Israeli history in kind of the same way. Israel's no team. Let's be clear about that. But I love Israel. I love its culture. I love its history. I love its people. I love it all. But I also have to be honest when it's not perfect. Because otherwise, why would anyone trust me at all? 
And I think this week's episode is one of those not-so-perfect stories. We're going to be talking about the Israeli Black Panthers, or the Pantarim Shchorim, a fiery protest movement of the early 70s that ignited Israel's Mizrahi minority population. Now, this is a complicated story, and like Marv, I'm a fan who wants to call it like it is. But before diving in, we have to back up way, way before the founding of the state to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE. This cataclysmic event scattered most of the world's Jews to the four corners of the earth and inspired us to pray for the past 2,000 years for a return to the land of Israel and a reunification of the Jewish people. In 1948, it seemed that prayer had finally been granted. Before the formation of the modern state of Israel, the country boasted roughly 600,000 Jews. Some were European immigrants and a minority of Sephardic Jews who had been living in the land for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But by the end of 1952, more than double that number flooded the young country. It felt like it was finally happening and the Jews were returning to the ancestral homeland. The majority of these immigrants were Mizrahi, meaning Jews from North Africa and the Middle East. They came often running for their lives from countries like Yemen, Morocco, Iraq, Egypt, and Syria, where they had lived and often been oppressed. The Israeli operations that brought different Mizrahi communities to Israel are intricate, and this episode is already going to be way longer than we want it to be because this content is awesome and fascinating. So we can't get into everything, but I highly recommend you check out the unpacked videos and articles like our piece on the story of the Yemenite Jews, which you can find in the show notes below. But suffice it to say... Mizrahi immigrants to Israel faced chaos, lack of support, and from their perspective, they called out the left-wing Labor Party as being racist towards them. I know, confusing, but we'll get there. The new immigrants were first brought to Ma'abarot, or transit camps, where they lived in poverty. These camps were made of canvas tents, later upgraded to shacks, most without access to water or electricity. Higher-ups described the conditions as a holy horror, but Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion dismissed these concerns, saying, I don't accept this pampering approach. Anyone who doesn't want to live in the tents needn't bother coming here. And it didn't stop with the living conditions. Over and over, the Mizrahim were made to feel like the other. Giyar Yoseftal, who in 1956 became the Secretary General of the ruling party Mapai, said that Mizrahim have, quote, no morals, and that Moroccans were, quote, primitive people in a backward ethnic group. In the documentary, The Ancestral Sin, filmmaker David Derry exposed some pretty damning facts, like Ben-Gurion explicitly saying, it's true, there's discrimination, it's necessary. Now David Ben-Gurion, is it Let's pause for a sec. I know this is hard to hear, at least it's hard for me to say out loud. And that's probably why growing up we didn't learn about this tense early history between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim in Israel. Because our teachers were concerned that the truth might turn us away from a positive image of Israel. But again, like Marv said, our goal isn't to whitewash. It's to uncover our true story so that we can have a deeper, more profound, and incredibly real relationship with Israel and Israelis. This story helps us achieve these aims. So back to the story. By the 1960s, the Ma'abarot gave way to the so-called development towns on the state's periphery. Mizrahim were used to bolster the state's tenuous and constantly contested borders. Sterot and Ofakim, which in 2021 remained majority Mizrahi, are mere kilometers from Gaza. The Mizrahi immigrants were literally on the front lines of Israel's embattled borders. 
But life in Israel's central cities was even more problematic. In development towns, everyone was on equally bad footing. But cities, where the haves and have-nots rubbed elbows by day and went home to vastly different circumstances at night, threw the chasm between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi into stark relief. And in the northern city of Haifa, the ember of rebellion is about to smolder. There's a small neighborhood of Haifa called Wadi Salib. Like most other majority Mizrahi areas, as well as many non-Mizrahi areas, let's be straight about this, in the 50s, Israel was not exactly a replica of Bel Air. It was poor and underdeveloped. Many of its residents unemployed. Importantly, it was also right next to a wealthy Ashkenazi neighborhood called Hadar. Get ready for that name to come back. One night in July of 1959, totally irrelevant fun fact, non-sequitur precisely the month my father was born, the local drunk, a Moroccan immigrant named Yaakov al-Karif, Yaakov al-Kadif, or Akiva al-Kadif, depending on the source, was acting up, throwing bottles and resisting arrest. The police shot him, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. Rumors later proved to be untrue, spread that al-Karif had died in the hospital. The Mizrahi neighborhood's shock crystallized very quickly into anger, and then rage, and then riots. The protesters marched on the wealthy Ashkenazi neighborhood of Hadar, breaking windows and setting cars on fire. The mayor of Haifa, Abahushi, responded kind of poorly, inflaming the situation by comparing the demonstrations to Kristallnacht, which had happened only 20 years before and is a bit much from my perspective. The riots only spread, continuing to other majority Mizrahi areas, where demonstrators burned down buildings associated with political parties or the local branch of the labor union. The riots eventually ended, and their leader, a Moroccan immigrant named David Ben Harouche, was sentenced to prison. Shocking to no one, nothing actually changed for the Mizrahim following the events of the summer of 1959. But the stage was set, the resentment continued to simmer, and within 12 years, Wadi Salib would soon be replaced in the national imagination with another neighborhood whose residents aimed to start a more lasting revolution. If you've seen the Israeli TV show Valley of Tears, and by the way, you should, it's both invigorating and anxiety-inducing at the same time, you've had a peek into the Jerusalem neighborhood of Musrara, a third of which was on government welfare. You've seen that it was overcrowded, stuffed to the gills with young people with few prospects beyond continued truancy and unemployment. And these seamy conditions provided an impetus for a massive social awakening. As new European immigrants began arriving in Israel in the 60s, the young Mizrahi Jews of Musrara and Al-Fakim and Ashdod and Sterot and Dimona and Yerucham could not help but notice the preferential treatment that these Ashkenazim received. They were given large apartments, generous government loans, access to social services. In contrast, Jews who had arrived from Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria and Libya and Yemen and Iran and Iraq and on and on in the early 1950s were still crowded into slums that lacked real schools or job opportunities. Mizrahi immigrants felt trapped, locked into a cycle of poverty. Their resentment soon bubbled over. And finally, now we're here at the creation of the Israeli Black Panthers. If this name sounds familiar to you as an American listener, well, it's supposed to. The American Black Panthers were established by California college students Bobby Seal and Huey P. Newton in 1966. They were sick of the black American community being seen as second class, and while they laid out specific demands in their official platform like full employment, housing, better education, Almost just as importantly, they were also determined to help the black American community feel a sense of black pride. 
But interestingly, though the focus of the Black Panthers in America was on American social ills, they also had a global consciousness. The organization often weighed in on conflicts and governments around the world. And in the Arab-Israeli conflict, they were not on the side of the Jews. In July of 1967, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, SNCC, led by Stokely Carmichael, who was known as the Honorary Prime Minister of the Black Panther Party, published an anti-Israel screed in the SNCC newsletter. The article calls Israel an illegal state, claims that Zionist terror gangs deliberately slaughtered and mutilated women, children, and men, and then treads some well-worn territory with this cute little tidbit. Did you know that the famous European Jews, the Rothschilds, who have long controlled the wealth of many European nations, were involved in the original conspiracy with the British to create the State of Israel, and are still among Israel's chief supporters? That the Rothschilds also control much of Africa's mineral wealth? Charming, right? Jeez. Rabbi Norman Lamb, former president of Yeshiva University and someone who's had a tremendous impact on my own thinking, wrote... I question the priorities and consistency of many Jewish students when they make of the Black Panthers a cause celeb of their moralistic movement. Yes, I agree that they are in this country entitled to a fair trial and to be protected from police brutality and vindictiveness. I believe we should see to it that the police who are brutal are punished and that even Black Panthers receive their rights as American citizens. But they are not our friends. They are anti-Semites and they are anti-Israel. I would like to see young Jews who seek justice for the Black Panthers and more power to them in their passion for justice oppose these pernicious anti-Semites with equal zeal. So it might be clear to you why the Israeli establishment, including Prime Minister Golda Meir, weren't the biggest fans of the American Black Panthers. This animosity only grew when the Black Panthers newspaper ran editorials by Yasser Arafat and George Habash heads of the PLO and the PFLP, both of which carried out multiple terrorist attacks throughout the 60s and 70s, including Operation Entebbe, which we discussed in detail in a past episode of Unpacking Israeli History. So why on earth would the Israeli Black Panthers model themselves after a group that dives headfirst into a pool of tired anti-Semitic tropes? Didn't they know about the American Panthers' view on Zionism? Well, yeah, they did. And that was kind of exactly the point. The Pantarim were well aware of what they were doing when they chose their name. In fact, it was kind of the whole point. Kochavi Shemesh, an Iraqi-born Panther, said, The idea was to frighten Golda. She said that this name wouldn't let her sleep. That was what we wanted. With the name, we changed the discourse between the social movements and the establishment. In short, the name was a middle finger to the Israeli government and to the ordinary Ashkenazim who, from their estimation, looked down on Mizrahi Jews. And by modeling their movement after black Americans who celebrated and drew power from their blackness, the Israeli Panthers reclaimed their identities and all it connoted with pride. So back to the Jerusalem neighborhood Musrara, where in 1971, along with jobs, houses, and food, pride was in short supply. But what there was, was anger, which came to a head when the young Moroccan-born men who formed the nucleus of the Israeli Black Panthers, among them Sadia Marciano, Charlie Bitton, and Ruven Abergel, organized their first official protest in March of 1971. See, the police had refused them a permit on grounds that many had served time. 
To add insult to injury, they ordered preventative arrests, simply assuming the protests would turn violent. This didn't stop the Panthers. They protested in front of Jerusalem City Hall anyway, leading Mayor Teddy Kolek to poke his head out a window and crankily exhort them to get off my lawn. The Pantarim's energy drew the attention of socialist anti-Zionist group Matzpen and other radical groups, and the movement was off to the races. Despite having little to no formal education, the Pantarim were savvy, and they had a flair for the dramatic, which they demonstrated during a hunger strike at the Kotel right before Passover of 1971. Their aim? A meeting with the higher-ups in the Israeli government. And it worked! Imagine that for a second. A group of angry young men, largely uneducated, living in a slum. Many have criminal records, and within a month, they're meeting with the prime minister, the most powerful person in the government. There are differing accounts of this meeting, with some offering calm, reasonable quotes like this one from Ruven Abergel, We are not seeking welfare funds or charity. All we want is the opportunity to advance ourselves. The situation of that group is poor, and many live under the poverty line. What they earn isn't enough to live off of. I wandered in the neighborhoods where Sephardi Israelis live and saw it with my own eyes. The conversation, however, deteriorated, with Abergel eventually calling Mayor a liar when she outlined all the government was doing to help establish an equitable society. Though they came prepared with 33 demands, including the abolishment of the slums and representation for Mizrahim in all of Israel's institutions, the Pantarim left empty-handed. So it's no surprise that they continued to protest with increasing violence. It was in May of 1971, during a fiery protest that became known as the Night of the Black Panthers, that Mayer made one of her most famous mistakes. She said, they're not nice people. She is reported to have sniffed contemptuously. The quote is so famous that there is literally an alley in Musrara named after it, the They're Not Nice Alley or Simtat Hemlo Nechmadim. But let's give Prime Minister Golda Meir a little more credit here. The demonstration of the night before, like many that would come later that summer, had turned violent, leading to hours of clashes between protesters and police. In a particularly ugly moment, the Israeli police beat Panter Kochavi Shemesh, who limped due to a childhood bout with polio across his legs. In short, it was bad. And the night became even worse when protesters threw three Molotov cocktails at police. So when Mayer famously lamented the Panthers' lack of social niceties, it was in context of that night when a host at a political function mentioned that some of the Panthers were nice guys. According to the Israeli state archives, Golda responded that people who throw Molotov cocktails at Jewish police aren't nice guys. Regardless of what she meant or didn't mean, regardless of context, regardless of whether or not you agree, one thing was clear. The country was on fire. The struggle rode itself on the bodies of young Mizrahi boys who described their treatment at the hands of police. They grab us for no reason. They beat us up. So you break and admit to having done things you didn't even do. Sadia Marciano, one of the founders of the group, became the unofficial face of the protest when police beat him so badly his face swelled. But here's where things get complicated for the Pantarim. What exactly do they stand for? Like, yes, ending police brutality, like Rabbi Lamb said, is an easy thing to agree on. But beyond that, each member of the group had a vastly different vision of their goals. Some of the Pantarim were Marxists, who made common cause with the PLO. Yes, that PLO! But others were strong patriots. According to historian Oz Frankel, one of the leaders of the Pantarim wanted to end demonstrations with Hatikva, Israel's national anthem. Others demanded that juvenile delinquents be allowed to serve in the military, an odd request, but one that speaks to how military service 
is a prerequisite to full participation in Israeli society. Perhaps it was this ideological confusion that prevented the Panthers from ever really accomplishing their aims. Their charitable activities like the, quote, liberation of fresh milk from the rich neighborhoods of Rehavia to the Jerusalem slums were stunts, important symbols, but not systemic change. When I say that, by the way, I'm not criticizing stunts or symbols. Both have real power for the collective imagination. But a bottle of milk is not food security for hungry children living in slums. A protest is not a guarantee of political representation. Complicating matters was the fact that the police had infiltrated the group almost from the very beginning. An informant named Yaakov Elbaz reported to the police on the group's activities. The HBO series Valley of Tears, which features a few fictionalized pantarim, dramatizes the tension between radicals and shtinkerim. That was my painful fake Israeli accent you just heard. Israeli slang for informants. In a 2019 interview, Ruven Abergel confirmed the devastating effect of the police's infiltration. Here's what he said. People were scared to hang out with us or speak to us because they could be arrested by the police. They, meaning the Israeli authorities, worked on isolating us from the rest of our community. In either case, it's clear that the Pantarim really never made real change, or at least not the way they wanted to. Sami Shetrit, a Moroccan-born poet and professor, told Electronic Intifada that the Yom Kippur War of 1973, only two years after the founding of the Israeli Black Panthers, put an end to the Panthers as we know it. There were no more mass demonstrations in Jerusalem. There were no more solidarity demonstrations. It was the end of a radical period. Which is not to say that the Panthers didn't continue their activities under different auspices. The protests dried up, but Biton Marciano went on to serve in the Knesset, though the Black Panther Party failed to win enough votes to join the government. Biton served under Hadash, the Israeli Communist Party. Marciano served for a term under Shelley, a now defunct peace party whose name is an acronym for Shalom Israel, Peace for Israel. And though Abigail and Shemesh never served in the Knesset, they remained politically active. But maybe they did make a huge splash. When Menachem Begin ended nearly 30 years of labor leadership, it was very much so because of the popularity that he had with Sephardic and Mizrahi society, because of his strong stances against surrounding enemy Arab countries, and because of his tax-cutting and price-slashing, which helped the Sephardic communities. And it was much more than that. For 30 years, Menachem Begin was shouting at the labor government as an outsider, and he was viewed as the voice of those who were marginalized. It's hard to compare American and Western politics today to politics in the Middle East 50 years ago, but the left was perceived as the cultural elites who were white, European, and totally out of touch with the lower classes. Menachem Begin, a Polish Jew, was perceived in the exact opposite way. In his 1952 autobiography, The Revolt, Begin describes Etzel, his paramilitary group. We were the melting pot of the Jewish nation in miniature. We never asked about origins. We demanded only loyalty and ability no one ever displayed stupid airs of superiority toward Mizrahim. Begin became the recognized spokesperson for the Mizrahi community, who also felt marginalized. And today? Today, the Mizrahi party, Shas, enjoys considerable influence. Today, Mizrahim serve in the Knesset. You might recognize some of their names. Shaul Mofaz, the former minister of defense, born in Iran. Amir Peretz, born in Morocco, former mayor of Steyrot, current member Knesset with the Labor Party. The Labor Party? The party of Ashkenazi elite? Miri Regev, former Minister of Culture and Minister of Transportation, born in Israel to Moroccan parents. Today, Mizrahim are leading scholars and professors, a number of which were quoted in this podcast. Today, a significant number of entertainers are Mizrahi, 
using their platform to shape our national stories, like Lior Raz, the guy who created Fauda, born in Israel to parents from Iraq and Algeria, Maur Zaguri, who shows Zaguri Imperia, Zaguri Empire, was widely praised for its rich and nuanced depiction of Moroccans living in Israel, Ben El Tavori, of the wildly popular pop duo Static and Ben El, born to a Yemenite father and a Moroccan mother. Like I said before, and unpacked, we have a few videos about the rich Mizrahi cultural world that surrounds us today, which you've got to watch. We'll put a link to those videos in the show notes. Mizrahi culture and Israeli culture have become synonymous. I don't want to act like things are perfect. They aren't. But by most standards, the country has come pretty darn far. And I think the most important marker is this. Among regular people, not politicians, not scholars, not professors, not entertainers, there's been a huge rise in how often Ashkenazim and Mizrahim marry each other, producing, quote, mixed offspring, who identify most often not as Mizrahi or as Ashkenazi, but as simply Israeli. As of 2016, it's estimated that 20% of kids born in Israel are products of these marriages. That number is likely to increase. So here are your five fast facts about the Black Panthers. Number one, in the first four years after the founding of the State of Israel, the country's population doubled, with most of these immigrants from Israeli countries like Yemen, Morocco, Iraq, Egypt, Libya, Syria, and more. Number two, these new immigrants were first placed in transit camps and then in development towns or in city slums. They faced poverty, discrimination, and lack of economic opportunity, where their concerns were dismissed by the political leadership and social elites, leading to intense Mizrahi resentment. Number three, the Israeli Black Panthers, or Pantherim Shkharim, rose out of this resentment. They intentionally and provocatively named themselves after the American Black Panthers, both to needle the elites who hated the anti-Semitism that came out of the American group and to try to help the Mizrahi community feel the same sense of pride that black Americans felt. Number four, there were a lot of internal squabbles within the group about what the Pantarim's goals were. And only two years after founding, with the Yom Kippur War taking over the country, the group kind of fell apart. Number five, on the whole, in the last 50 plus years, the Mizrahi community has made huge strides in Israeli society, in politics, culture, academia, entertainment, and so much more. Those are the facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. You know, sometimes the story of Israel is reduced to the story of the conflict between Israel and its neighboring countries, or the relationship with the Palestinians. And of course, they are important pieces of the puzzle. But the story of Israel is so much bigger than that. Here at Unpacking Israeli History, we want to understand the full story, including the major challenge of what it looks like for a modern state to bring all of its disparate people who haven't lived together in thousands of years back to one land and one community. This was a sui generous challenge. Shmuel Rosner and Camille Fuchs conclude their must-read book, Israeli Judaism, by saying, Having ingathered so many Jews, it forces them to articulate what they have in common. Having united so many Jews... It compels them to live together, bound as neighbors in friction and compromise. But let's let another preeminent modern Jewish scholar have the last word here. Because I think Drake got it right when he said, started from the bottom, now we're here. I do think that ultimately, the story of Mizrahi Jewry in Israel is a hopeful one. We've accomplished a lot and we still have a ways to go. That, my friends, is Zionism. Let's keep going. Thank you all for listening. If you haven't yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us grow this podcast community by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Now it's time for a final segment, Israel Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. 
We get the best emails from you guys, and we want to share them with the world. This week, I want to highlight an awesome letter from Matt. Here's his letter. My name is Matt. I moved to Israel from London two years ago to live with my fiancé. It's worth mentioning that I'm not Jewish or religious, and I consider myself fairly left-wing. Having never given much thought to Israel and Palestine in the past, I was shocked when seeing it with my own eyes. Israel is young, fun, hardworking, well-educated, and an extremely welcoming country. Having always hung out with left-wing and liberal crowds, I have a hard time seeing how many misconceptions these people have about the real situation in Israel and Palestine, and I'm surprised at how little they know about the history of the region. I just want to thank you for the work you do with your podcast. I'm doing my best to share it with those interested in, but unaware of, the history of Israel. Matt, this email rocks, and I feel the same way. And please, yes, spread this podcast to everyone. I love Israel so much. But before I started really spending time there, I don't think I really got it fully. Just reading about Israel, talking about Israel, and sometimes it's not enough to help us really get it. Honestly, I don't fault the people who read about Israel and come to quick judgments about Israel. I prefer they don't, but I get it. If anything, we live in a society which pushes people to judge things before knowing them. So Matt, I hope that, like you, more people get a chance to come to Israel and really experience it firsthand. I'll try to meet you there. Let's get a coffee. And if you listeners, if you also have thoughts, comments, suggestions, ruminations, whatever to share, don't hesitate. Be like Matt. Send us a message at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And again, write to us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. Your email might even get on the show. This podcast was produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Baz, Baruch Goldberg, and Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember, please fill out that survey. You can find it in the show notes of this episode or at jewishunpacked.com slash podcast survey.